Okay. Now, I don't normally begin an interview by talking about myself, but uh, I am involved with an organisation called Better Hearing Australia. Uh, I'm a regular producer on the Print Handicap Radio 1RPH. I'm a producer on Radio 2XX. Great. I'm a member of Sustainable Population Australia, and I'm active with the energy think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. Right. Excellent. Now, now I, I, so I don't normally talk about myself, but the reason I mention those organisations is because they are all indicators of social capital, which is something that has particular interest to my guest today, Dr Andrew Lee, who is the Shadow Assistant Treasurer and the member for my electorate, which is the uh, electorate of Fraser here in Canberra. And so, Andrew, we'll get into social capital in a moment, but first I just want to get a little bit about your background, a sense of who you are and what got you interested in politics. So, Rod, I think whenever you're talking about background, it's useful to talk about family. And uh, my grandparents on my dad's side were a Methodist minister and uh, uh, his his wife, who was essentially sort of was... Uh, you got two for the price of one back there, back then. Uh, somebody who was very engaged in uh, working for social justice in his local community and who ultimately uh, died doing a fundraising run for overseas aid in 1970. Uh, on my mum's side, uh, my grandfather's a boilermaker, my uh, grandmother was a teacher, uh, and they both uh, were very active again in the church uh, in assisting local Indigenous people and refugees. Uh, when their kids moved out of home, they would often have refugees living in their, living in their homes. And so I, from those sort of two lineages, uh, grew up in a household where politics was constantly a topic of dinner party conversations, uh, and where there was sort of not overtly but but uh, substantively a notion given to uh, my brother and I that a, a life of service to others is a is a life well lived. So, with both politics and a sense of social commitment. Yes, absolutely. Now, you initially in your career you went into academia. That's right. So I was uh, I trained as a lawyer initially, then retooled as an economist, studying overseas, and then came back. Working, I guess, principally on issues of poverty and disadvantage at, uh, at the ANU. Uh, and then uh, Bob McMullen uh, suddenly announced his, uh, his retirement just prior to the 2010 election. There was an open pre-selection and, uh, much to my surprise, uh, I was the uh, successful candidate. So was that a long-term ambition to get into politics or was it really just an opportunity when that came up? or How far back does this stretch I'd always been interested in politics. I joined the Labor Party at age 18 uh, when Luke Foley, now the New South Wales opposition leader, signed me up at a Sydney University uh, uh, orientation week stall. Uh, but uh, getting into politics... Uh, being engaged in the Labor Party and getting into elected office are two very different things. And uh, uh, I just wrote a book last year called The Luck of Politics, which emphasises that chance plays a huge role in most political careers, and uh, uh, mine's no exception. And then you made the transition from academia into politics. How did you find that? So uh, politics, you deal with far more issues uh, and... Uh, uh, there's far more storytelling. So, for example, the fact that uh, I 
grew up in Bandar Aceh in Indonesia when I was a child uh, was uh, was something I probably never mentioned once to uh, any of my colleagues uh, at the Australian National University. But in politics, I find that's a story that sometimes uh, comes out when I'm talking to youth volunteers going off to work on Ausaid projects, for example. Uh, so there's 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 more. There's more storytelling in the uh, in, in politics because it's more about uh, persuasion. So it's more about communication than, than about the rigour of academia? Yeah, or maybe a broader set of communication. So academia is much more, particularly econo- economics, is uh, very much focused around theoretical models and statistical evidence. Uh, and the greatest favour that you can do an academic colleague is to uh, go along to one of their seminars, point out a fatal flaw in their analysis and show them how to fix it. Uh, it turns out that's not such a desirable skill if you're, uh, you're in a political party room. So in, in academia and in science and, and those sorts of fields, you're often really held to standards of rigour. Is that what you find in politics? Well, politics is inherently much more of a team game, uh, so relationships matter, and I guess that's why uh, most people don't uh, make significant differences to the world during their first term in Parliament, uh, because, and in some sense, it would be worrying if every every first term backbencher could uh, could could make a big difference. Um, the system has a degree of inertia built into it, but also the relationships are inherent to, to building change. So one of the things I admire with people like Julia Gillard and Bill Shorten uh, is that they're very good in forging coalitions of people who come along with them on the, the journey to make change, uh, not simply going out there and saying, I've got a great idea and you're an idiot, idiot if you don't accept it. <laughs> yes, sir. Is it been what you expected? Because from the outside, politics was like a really mucky business with inflated egos, tearing each other down, and it's really not quite a nice place as it appears from the outside. Is that a, a construction of the media? Or no, is that really realistic? No, there's certainly some nastiness around, but uh, overall I found it the most diverse and interesting job I've ever done. Uh, yesterday I was in South Australia and uh, had a chance when I was there to uh, chat to some of the some of the locals about the challenges of jobs in a state where the unemployment rate's now pushing 8% and uh, threats of uh, the closure of a big uh, steel production plant uh, could imperil even more jobs. This morning I was chatting to, uh, with, alongside Bill Shorten with victims of uh, financial fraud and, and how they've lost their life savings and what that does to a family uh, to be placed in a situation where kids are nervous about asking mum and dad for 20 bucks for a school excursion because they know that, that mum and dad are just on the brink of, of having the house repossessed. Um, you'd never have those. The, I, I never would have had those two sets of conversations as an as an academic. How, how do you find it when it gets personal? Because sometimes it does. Yeah. So uh, I, I suppose I've developed a slightly thicker skin in in politics, but I'm struck at least at the electoral level at how decent people are. Uh, people will, you know, there's plenty of people in my electorate who disagree me, with me about uh, one or another issue, uh, but typically they'll 
hold that off until a moment while I'm doing a street stall before they'll come up and raise the concerns or they'll drop me an email. If someone comes up to you while you're uh, taking the kids to swimming lesson or uh, wandering through the aisles of uh, Woolworths Dixon, then almost invariably it's to make a positive comment. Uh, People are extraordinarily decent like that. So now you've been writing recently, well actually for a long time I think, about uh, social capital. Mm. What is it about social capital that appears to? I think you've mentioned your uh, Methodist and your family upbringing already, but it remains a strong focus of what you uh, concerns you now. Yeah, so social capital uh, builds on the uh, traditional economic idea of physical capital, bridges and buildings, uh, and the 1960s economic idea of human capital, uh, skills and knowledge, uh, to add a third category of capital, uh, social capital, the, the value, the, the links that join us together have inherent value. Uh, it uh, comes out of sociology, but probably the person best associated with it is Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone in the year 2000. Uh, And when I was at Harvard, I had the the privilege of working with Robert Putnam as one of his uh, research team on uh, on, uh, one of the many projects he was engaged in, and that got me interested to think about social capital in Australia. So over the course of the decade, from 2000 to 2010, I uh, gathered together as many scraps of evidence as I could about the strength of community in Australia, which ultimately became the book Disconnected. Um, Unfortunately, since then, the situation's only gotten worse, Uh, most of the statistics that I've been able to find in recent years suggest that the strength of Australian community has uh, uh, fallen from the 60s to 2000, uh, 2010 and, and fallen again since 2010. Well, how do you measure social capital? Uh, so you can look at uh, formal member, formal organisations. You can ask people if they're a, an active member of an organisation, and fewer Australians are. Uh, you can look at particular organisations: Scouts, Guides, Rotary, Lions, uh, churches, uh, trade unions, and you find again a, a drop off. Uh, you can look at surveys of uh, how many friends people have and uh, how well they know the neighbours. And you it find relates a decline to, there. to trust as well, doesn't it? Uh, that's right. Uh, interpersonal trust is one metric that doesn't seem to have uh, moved, although we only have me- reliable measurements of trust for uh, uh, going back to the 1980s. We can't go right back to the 1960s. Uh, and there's a few bright spots. Uh, crime, which is, I suppose, one sort of extreme manifestation Manifestation of distrust as uh, crime rates have, have improved, they've uh, they've fallen. Um, so that's a that that's a, a, a rare bright spot amidst uh, a range of other indicators that seem to be going in the do, wrong direction. Do you direction. think, to some extent, it's the inverse of the strongly individualist culture that individualism that you know, and you know the classic Hollywood trope, and only one man. Mm. Do, do you think it's the inverse of that to some extent? Uh, I'm not sure how strongly that's inculcated in our society, but it, but it is a ridiculous trope, isn't it? Uh, you look at just about anything that's ever been achieved in human history, whether it's uh, uh, someone winning a war or someone coming up with uh, uh, with, a, with a great product. Uh, almost invariably, it's the result of teams. Uh, the iPhone is uh, the result of teamwork across many continents. Uh, great. Uh, battles are typically won because of the esprit de corps within a military unit. Uh, even uh, if uh, if you love if you love food, you're probably the beneficiary of a great uh, culinary team in a in a restaurant. Uh, if you love alcohol, then uh, uh, most wines and beers are put together by teams. Uh, so teamwork is everywhere in our society, and I think probably should be better valued. 
So do you attribute a cause of the decline in social capital to anything? I think there's a number of things going on, uh, Rod. I, 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 uh, there's some interpersonal, uh, impersonal technologies that have arisen, uh, the television, uh, the internet, uh, computer game, gaming uh, have been very attractive technologies in themselves, but as our time use of those things have increased, uh, what's decreased is the informal socialising. Uh, kids are more likely to be playing with the Xbox, and if you look at time use surveys, they're less likely to be having a game of backyard soccer. Uh, we've got a rise in commuting times. Uh, most of that is car commuting, and most car commuting has only one person in the car. Uh, we've also had uh, desirable social changes in the form of uh, more women entering the paid workforce, uh, which, uh, which have uh, acted to reduce uh, community life. So the Australia of the 1950s had much higher gender pay discrimination in the formal labour market. That pushed many Australian women to stay in the home, uh, and they responded by uh, running, set, setting up and running many social groups around Australia. It's a terrific thing we got rid of gender pay discrimination, but one of the results of it uh, is that many of the organisations that were sustained by women in that period uh, are now floundering. To, to what extent do you think it's influenced by government policy? Well, I'm not sure that governments as a whole are terrific at helping people find friends and join organisations, but they can do some things on the margin. Uh, as a local member, one of the things that I've tried to do is to nourish young social entrepreneurs by having a regular breakfast and linking them up with one another. Uh, we have small equipment grants, which can probably play a useful part in sustaining communities, and, uh, and also things like recognising great volunteers through uh, uh, everything from uh, certificates from local members uh, right up to uh, uh, OAMs, AMs, AOs and ACs. Um, incidentally, those Australian awards uh, tend to go disproportionately towards uh, men who are part of formal organisations rather than women who are part of grassroots organisations, and that's something we should do better. Now, you've also written about growth, and in your answer just now you mentioned commuting times. Mm. Uh, so what's the driver for growth? What is it that motivates you? Now, you, in your article in the Canberra Times a few months ago, referred to the benefits of growth. Can you talk me through that? Sure. So uh, uh, over the course of the last century, Australian uh, the rise in material living standards has uh, improved Australian life expectancy. Uh, the typical Australian now living uh, a decade longer than we did when I was when I was born. Uh, it's uh, we've also seen for simple changes such as improvement in the quality of food, fewer Australians uh, uh, having to use an outdoor outdoor dunny, for example, uh, and uh, and it now being very rare for a parent having to bury their child. Um, uh, something which was very common in uh, centuries gone by. So the, the health benefits of rising living standards are probably the most tangible uh, and they track one another uh, very, very closely. Uh, affluent societies tend to be societies with lower rates of infant mortality. Uh, they tend to be societies with higher levels of happiness where people are more likely to say that they loved during the day uh, and less likely to say that they experience pain. Are they necessary outcomes of growth itself? 
they certainly seem to track track very strongly. So if you look at the Human Development Index, for example, or if you look at uh, measures of life satisfaction, uh, you get a correlation uh, somewhere in the order of about 0.8, which is about as high as a correlation as you see across uh, cross-national comparisons. It used to be thought in the 1970s uh, that uh, there was a ceiling to this. When a country's income went over, say, $20,000 a year, more money didn't buy more happiness. But actually that turned out just to be an artefact of, of the fact that we only had data, happiness data for about a dozen countries. Now that Gallup is surveying life satisfaction in over 150 countries, we can see the pattern is very robust and that uh, a given percentage change in income buys about the same amount of increased happiness right across the globe. Do you, do you think that perhaps growth itself has become an objective and we've lost sight of the benefits that you're talking about? It's certainly a risk. Uh, I don't see anything uh, inherent in, the, in, in growth. It's, uh, uh, economic growth is good for the, for the, things, the benefits it brings. Uh, but you look around the world now at the countries which uh, have experienced growth over the la- since the global financial crisis and those that haven't, uh, and in the countries that haven't, uh, things are pretty grim. Uh, gr- Greek uh, young, young people in Greece are overwhelmingly looking for other countries to move to. Uh, young people in Spain struggle against an unemployment rate which has been pushing up towards 50%. Uh, the absence of opportunities for young people in those countries uh, is largely driven by the fact that the economy has ceased, ceased to grow uh, and that's taken away the, uh, the, the chance for young people to move up. You also see it in a social justice sense. Uh, If you're uh, an ethnic minority or if you have lower levels of education, uh, then typically you're the first to lose your job when when, when growth slows. affluent uh, majority eth- ethnic men uh, are more likely to, uh, to a high educated ethnic majority men are, more, are those most likely to hold their jobs and uh, so the, 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 the losers from growth uh, it can, uh, can, can often be the most vulnerable. Do you, do you see limits on growth that there are natural constraints to how much we can grow? So most of our growth is weightless. Um, we're both engaged in activities which are adding to GDP at the moment, but, uh, but no uh, trees are being felled for this, uh, for this conversation. Uh, the physical weight of US GDP now is uh, lower than it was a century ago because a century ago America was uh, building, building skyscrapers, engaged in a huge production, production process uh, of its highways, for example. Uh, so if, if all growth involved uh, the same physical amount of stuff, then clearly there would be physical, there'd be constraints. Um, but uh, but much of our growth now is in sectors such as healthcare, education, financial services, uh, which are, which are essentially weightless. So, what about the growth of, say, a city like Canberra? And I've noticed, as a resident, I've been here since the early 1970s, mm. and it's gone from a city which was really a manageable size, 200,000 or thereabouts, and now we're what 350,000. And it seems that every corner block has another multi-storey apartment block. The roads are currently being dug up. And we have this very contentious tramway going down Northbourne Avenue as we speak. It's about to to commence. A lot of these things are due to the growth of the city itself, which has a direct 
impact does it not on the livability of our city? And you've mentioned commuting times, and therefore does that also have an effect on social capital? So one of the classic models of social capital was Joan Jacobs' uh, idea of New York City, uh, of uh, a, a community which works through by virtue of population density. Joan Jacobs loved Manhattan, uh, one of the densest, dense, most densely populated places on earth because she saw the, the many serendipitous interactions that occurred there. Uh, others have noted that Manhattan is uh, a place which produces a lot of innovative ideas, whether that's in uh, pu public policy and the artistic sphere or in the business sphere. Uh, so I don't think there's anything uh, inherently about growth that says that, uh, that it should make us more miserable. Uh, but you've got to have the right policy settings to manage that. Manhattan has uh, a terrific subway system, which ensures that people aren't st stuck in traffic all, all day. Uh, and making sure we have uh, good transport networks is, is critical to managing growth. But you can grow slowly and have bad congestion, or you can grow fast and, uh, and manage to reduce congestion. It's, it's about your transport policies, not your growth. So are you seeing Canberra morphing into some kind of Manhattan? Uh, I, I doubt Canberra will. Uh, Manhattan's uh, probably the extreme end. But it does illustrate that uh, high population density uh, needn't leave you with, uh, with something like uh, Los Angeles, where travel times are, uh, are very high, or Bangladesh, where, which doesn't seem to have put down the infrastructure. Uh, it's possible to have... Uh, density with uh, with quality, uh, and indeed, to that that then decreases the each person's environmental footprint. Uh, your environmental footprint is much lower if you're living in an apartment than a freestanding house. Uh, it's lower if you're uh, catching the bus to work or walking to work than if you own a car. Uh, so we can we can we can we can live more uh, in a more environmentally sustainable way in a in a denser place. Uh, but it should be driven by the quality of what, uh, of what so people do you, want. Do you see a time in the future in which we will say we have grown sufficiently and we're now happy we would like to stabilise with what we've got? Uh, in terms of GDP or population? Uh, either. So population, I, uh, the, most of the United Nations projections have the world population capping out at some point. I, I can't remember the number, whether it caps out at 9 or 10. 10, nine 10, or 10 yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and that seems to be largely driven by, by these transitions that you're seeing uh, as, as countries become more affluent. Uh, people tend to want to have fewer children. Uh, for a start, they expect their children to survive, but secondly, uh, they expect that they won't need their children as a, a surrogate pension plan because they, the government's actually providing a pension. So Bangladesh, for example, has gone from six children per, per woman a generation ago down to 2.2. Bangladesh is at replacement rate and, and most developed countries are below replacement rate. So I think population will cap out. I'm less sure that uh, um, economic outcomes will cap out. I suspect that globalisation, technological change will continue to make us more productive and more efficient. Uh, that will give us more resources that we won't we probably won't spend on buying more stuff. We'll spend on buying more services. Uh, you know, if you doubled the typical Australian's income, uh, I doubt they'd go out and put a second TV on the wall. They might be more likely to uh, uh, get a massage or a personal trainer. Uh, and they're the growth occupations you've already seen. So are you optimistic about the future? Yes, although I think we face some significant headwinds. Uh, I do think Australia has 
the potential to be able to plug into services supply chains of Asia uh, and enjoy higher levels of prosperity, but also greater connectedness and equity. So if you had the, the luxury of writing your own Wikipedia entry in 20 years' time <laughs> and it were to be titled The Legacy of Dr Andrew Lee, Member for Fraser, or possibly some bigger title even, uh, what, would you, what would you like to write in that? Uh, I'd like to be somebody who had made a difference to the quality of the public conversation. Uh, the natural role for a professor turned politician, I think, is to continue to work not just in the realm of power but also in the realm of ideas. Uh, one of the things I've tried really hard over the last six years to do is to maintain my links to, to academia and, and to the broader intellectual conversation that's going on in, in Canberra. Um, so I'd hope to to continue to do that across a, a range of different different issues. Um, you never want a parliament full of professors, but if you've, if you've got one or two, I think that's useful, and you then want them to be uh, d- continuing to work on the, the quality of the public conversation. Uh, it's not just, not just drafting laws, but maybe even books as well. So it looks like we have a federal election looming. How do you feel about that? Uh, I enjoy the, enjoy the chance to get out and uh, uh, engage the range of different issues. Uh, the conversations that I had in South Australia, perhaps I wouldn't have had had we not been in a, an election cycle. Uh, you, you get a sense as to some of the sort of different and interesting challenges across the country. I was in uh, Gladstone last week, uh, which is essentially a, a city driven by a, a single port and making sure that that port continues to, uh, to work, dealing with the environmental challenges of it sitting just outside the Great Barrier Reef Marine Zone uh, is, uh, is, is huge there. South Australia, high unemployment, a uh, de- decline of the car industry, big challenges around the manufacturing sector. And for Canberra, uh, the conversation about where the public service goes and making sure that we uh, have an education system that's as good as it can be, I think is a big challenge here. Well, Andrew, uh, thank you very much for your time today. So a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Rod. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.